And then let's turn to the book of Romans. If you're not familiar with uh, the Bible, just, uh, just inside one of the first few pages, you'll find an index. You can look up Romans there, I'll give you a page number, and you'll find it. Romans chapter 1. Verse 8, Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in, in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles." We've seen as we've been looking at the start of this letter uh, that Paul has introduced himself. He's writing to people who don't know him firsthand. He knows one or two people there in Rome, but most of them never met him. Maybe they've heard things about him. Maybe they haven't. And he's introducing himself because he hopes to come to them. And uh, he also, in writing to them, describes them, he, say he hasn't met them, but he's saying some things that are true of everyone who is in Christ. And that's his introduction. And then verse 8, he gets into what he wants to say. And he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. If you then read down the rest of this chapter, you can look in vain. How he said first, you can look in vain for second or third. He kind of loses his way. Um, But he says, first, and he presumably meant to say, and secondly, thirdly, but he got carried away with his enthusiasm for what he's talking about, and he's so enthusiastic about the gospel that he kind of loses his thread in terms of how he was actually constructing this, which is encouraging for everyone who preaches when they lose their way just because they warm to their theme. But, uh, and if we were training preachers, we would ask them to have, you know, maybe three points, first, second, third. Well, here we have a bad example of Paul saying first and then losing his way totally. But he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. Just notice in even making that comment, how kind of contentful it is. How, if you want to use the expression, how deeply theological it is. I thank my God. He's talking about relationship with God the Father. And how does he thank God and through, and how does he have relationship with the Father? Well, through Jesus Christ. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He, he only thinks biblically. Whatever he says, he conveys it in those terms. God is his God because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus died for him, he can now come to the Father. And because of the death of Christ, God is his Father 
and hence he thanks God through Jesus Christ for them. Now, this is what he's saying. He's thanking God for something. And basically, it's true, I think, generally it's true, that when we thank God for something, we're thanking God for something that we value. There are all kinds of things that go to make our lives worthwhile or comfortable or whatever, but they're just kind of in the background. But we thank God for things that impact us, things that strike us particularly as good. So there are all kinds of things like, um, for example, as we're here this morning worshipping God and uh, we're all encouraged to raise our voices to God. I'm sure all kinds of things were being expressed to God at that time. I would doubt very much that when we were all worshipping God, anyone, I mean there's hundreds of people here, and I, but I'm pretty sure this will be true, that no one thanked God for the carpet we didn't have it, the building would be very different, wouldn't be as comfortable. But it's one of those things, it's just there in the background. And I suppose if we thought about it, we're grateful we've got a carpet, but we're not going to actually thank God for that, unless anyone can prove me wrong. I don't see any hand going up. No, I could be pretty confident we wouldn't do that. We don't thank God for incidental things. We thank God for significant things. Paul is thanking God for something here. And so we see this is significant to Paul. This is something he really values. This is something that that, uh, causes him to come before God uh, with thanksgiving. And what is it? Your faith is being reported all over the world. That's first, he says, first. This is the first point he wants to make. Your faith is being reported all over the world. Why is he so grateful for it? Well, because faith is essential. Faith is the basic to this whole matter of what Christ has come to do and what it means to be a Christian. Last week we were looking at verse 7, grace and peace to you, and we saw that those two words, grace and peace, are words that occur again and again through this letter. Well, if that's true of those two words, it's certainly true of this word, faith. Faith is what it's all about. Just one or two references in verse 17 in this chapter. He says, In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What does he mean there? A righteousness from God is revealed. Well, in chapter 3, verse 22 Verses 21 and 22 says, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So Jill was testifying to that just before uh, I came up here, to just believing what Jesus has provided. A righteousness, Paul says, that is apart from law. Faith, then, is the means by which we come into relationship with God. And it contrasts with with law-keeping. It's apart from law. Because law-keeping, our law-keeping will always be imperfect. And it's impossible to ever, by things that we do, be right with God. A long time ago, when I was, I guess, 
late teens. For the first time when I was in my late teens, I went up Mount Snowdon in Wales. It's the first time I'd been there. And I can't remember now which route it was. It wasn't the easy route. You know, if you've been there, there's the, the footpath up from the, the station down in Clamberis, and you can walk about seven miles up to the top. That's, uh, that's the, the wuss way up. No, the extremely soppy way up is to go on the train. But uh, then there's a path along by that. That's the easy route, seven miles, strenuous. But that's, we went up a different way. Um, much, it wasn't serious climbing. It wasn't climbing at all. It's still walking, but one of, the, one of the, the more strenuous routes. Just before we got to, to the top, so we've gone most of the way up, somehow I missed the track. It was a difficult track to discern because it was a, a rough way up, but I was suddenly off where I should have been, and I found myself on my hands and knees on a sloping, uh, steeply sloping part of the mountain, and it was just all kind of rough stuff. You couldn't get hold of anything. And I began to slide down. And I looked behind me, the view, which in any other circumstances would have caused you to get your camera out, did not excite me. Because down there, thousands of feet down, you could see the lake and a, just a sheer drop, and I'm sliding. And what made it even worse was just a short distance away, but out of reach, I could see people walking up a footpath. And what made it even more incongruous as I'm facing an early death, sliding, you're frightened to make a move in case that makes you slide further, I could hear the jolly train. And every movement seemed to take me further back. I'm trying to get up there, beginning to panic. Obviously, I did make it. I'm here now. But that, that's a bit like trying to please God just by obeying the law. Every move you make seems to result in you sliding back. And you think, how can I do this? And then other people just seem to get there. How do we get there? By faith in Jesus. By faith in Jesus. This is this good news that Jesus died for us, taking our sin fully on himself, paying the penalty for our sin and saying to us, I've taken your sin. I am giving you my righteous standing with God. That is yours free by faith. Just believe in Jesus. And we can struggle. People struggle through their whole lives. If they've got any sense of God. They want to try to be good enough for God. But somehow it's like slipping. You can't get hold of anything. You make a bit of progress and slide back. And then there's faith. And that's this gospel. A righteousness from God apart from law. It's not what we do. It's what Jesus has done. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's this whole gospel. It's about faith. And Paul has heard of these people. There are people in Rome who believe. There are people in Rome who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he is thrilled with. It's not that he's thanking God for the quality of their faith. He's thanking God that there is faith. 
He's thanking God that there are believers right there in Rome, the center of the Roman Empire, in the capital city of the empire. There are people there who believe in Jesus. People of faith. So we, we become a Christian when we believe. We believe that Jesus died in our place. We believe that we could never make ourselves good enough. We could never scramble up to the top, as it were. We will always slide. But Jesus has died in our place to bring us to God. We believe that. And having believed it, we're saved the moment we believe. And then we are changed by continuing to believe. We continue to believe what God says. We become believers, people of faith, people who believe what God says, believing his word. So it says in verse 17 here, it says it's by faith from first to last, all the way through from now on. We are people who are marked out. We believe God, believing God for salvation and believing God for today. Believing God when you've got to demonstrate a prototype to someone the next day and you smash it. Believing God. All the stuff that we've heard today. It's about living in, by faith in God. We start out like that and we move on like that. It's an ongoing matter. And so Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now, why does he thank God for it? Well, because it is God who gives faith. If it was a good quality in these people, that they are people who believe, he'd thank them, he'd commend them. He'd say, first of all, I congratulate you for your faith. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I congratulate you for your faith. He said, I thank God for your faith. It's God who gives faith because it's only God who can turn an unbeliever into a believer. Because unbelief doesn't change easily. Unbelief, the Bible describes as blindness, just not seeing the obvious. So we can talk to someone who is not yet a believer and we can explain things the best we know how. And what do they say? They'll often say, I just don't see it. And they're absolutely right. They don't see it. They're blind to these things until God changes something. And not only that, there's an inbuilt bias, a prejudice that comes with unbelief. Unbelief has got a kind of stubbornness in it. So I heard Ginny sharing just the other day about... uh, those of you who don't know, she's a lady in the church here, not here today, but a lady in the church who had an amazing, miraculous healing many years ago. She'd had a broken back. God healed that. The impossible happened. And she was telling someone about this, and this person was just finding it hard to believe. She said, look, I, I could show you the x-rays. She said, well, don't bother. I don't believe it. That's prejudice. Don't show me the facts. I don't believe it. It's, it's a bias saying, I will not believe. And that's unbelief. It's, not, it, it's, it's a blindness, I don't see it. And a stubbornness, I will not see it. Because at the heart of it is rebellion against God. And that's an ingrained rebellion because the unbeliever knows, if I were to believe this, it would change my life. 
And people don't want their life changed. It's crazy. People don't want their life changed. And our lives desperately need to change. I heard a story, I don't know if it's ever true, but I heard a story years ago of a, a little lad in the east end of London, never gone outside the district where he was, and he's playing in a, with a muddy puddle in the street, just having a game there because he liked playing with water. Some kind person said to him, hey, would you like to come on a trip to the seaside? And he thought, no, I'd have to leave this muddy puddle. I like playing with water. He had no concept of the seaside, just enjoying his muddy puddle. Now, whether that story is true or not, I don't know, but it illustrates a point. The unbeliever says, I don't want my life changed. They don't realize what's out there. They don't realize who God is. They don't realize what God could do. Unbelief is blindness. It's prejudice. It's stubbornness and pride. And only God can change that. Only God can break through to someone and enable them to believe. The wonderful thing is God is willing to do that. And God does do that. And Paul is thanking God that God has done it for these people there in Rome that he's heard about. God, he said, I thank my God because your faith is being reported all over the world. It is God who turns people around. How does he do it? Well, actually, through what is happening right now. In chapter 10 of this same letter to the Romans, in chapter 10, verse 14, it says, How can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can faith come? Well, it says, verse 17 in, in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. How can they hear without someone preaching? Faith comes from hearing the message. When we preach Sunday by Sunday, two things are happening simultaneously. We are speaking. God is speaking. We're saying things. The Spirit is working. Both things happen at the same time. That's why we preach. Because faith comes from hearing. And hearing, uh, the message is heard through the word of Christ. How does God break into the life of someone who can't believe through his word? The proclaimed word of God, the preached word of God. What is happening right now, I humbly say, could change your life. I can't change your life. But why do I preach this? Because I believe in God's word. And God's word does things. It's like scattering little hand grenades. They settle and suddenly explode with faith in people's hearts. God does it. God does it. So because it is God who does it, Paul says, I thank God because your faith is being reported all over the world. But the other thing we see about this, the, we see that faith is essential, but what he is particularly thanking God for here is that their faith is public knowledge. Well, why is that significant? Well, for this reason. 
Rome was a very dangerous place to be a believer. It was a dangerous place on two counts. First of all, to be a believer in Jesus in Rome was dangerous because to not worship the Roman gods was viewed as being unpatriotic. When people worship the Roman gods, they're they're expressing their allegiance to Rome. By worshipping the gods of Rome, you say, I am loyally a Roman. If you refuse to worship those gods, and worse, you worship an invisible god. Well, what is this? This is radical. This is revolutionary. This is treason. It's very dangerous to be known to be a Christian in Rome. For that reason, it was viewed as treason. The second reason why it was dangerous, well, an additional reason, to be a Jewish believer in Jesus. And the gospel tended to spread by going, first of all, to the Jewish synagogues and then moving outwards. Well, for a Jew to believe that Jesus Christ is Messiah was dangerous. Because the Jews regarded that as blasphemy. And so you'd then get into trouble in the Jewish community, as happened. And so in Acts chapter 18, for example, Acts 18, we read that Paul arrived in Corinth and met a couple of Christians, Jewish believers in Jesus, Aquila and Priscilla. They had recently come from Italy because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. That's in AD 49. We know that there were riots in Rome, and there were riots in Rome because there were people there who believed in Jesus. Caused trouble in the whole Jewish ghetto. There were, and then Claudius said, get rid of a lot of them. And they're all thrown out of Rome. It was a dangerous place to be a believer. And yet... They don't keep their heads down. The sensible thing was to keep this a secret. To just go with the flow while secretly inside believing in Jesus. But no, your faith is being reported all over the world. It's blatant. These people believe in Jesus when it was exceedingly dangerous to be known to be a believer. And so Paul thanks God for that because this is Paul's heart. You see in verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul is not the sort of guy who keeps this quiet. And of course, it cost him. When he arrives in Rome, he arrives there as a prisoner. Why has he been arrested? Because he believed in Jesus. Wouldn't keep quiet about it. And it caused trouble and ultimately cost him his life. He thanks God that they have not kept their faith a secret. He's not embarrassed about the gospel because Jesus is wonderful and he cannot keep quiet about Jesus. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus said, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory 
with the holy angels. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. Secret believing is never part of the deal. Remember how Peter, standing warming himself by the fire, Jesus has just been arrested. Peter's there and someone comes to him and gives him a wonderful opportunity to witness to Jesus. Someone comes to him, asks him the question, are you one of this man's disciples? Well, Jesus is over there, just been arrested. Peter sees the implications of his answer and he swears, I don't know him. And once he's said it once, he can't get back from that. He's asked the question again and again and a third time and again. He denies knowing him. Secret belief. (laughs) It's not on. If we believe in Jesus, people know. Now, of course, that is massively relevant right now. We live in a nation that is rationalistic. That is to say, we believe as a nation in reason. Things have to be reasonable, provable. Faith in Jesus in that kind of climate is not reasonable. And because it's not reasonable, some dismissively say it's like believing in the tooth fairy. If you want to believe that, keep it to yourself. If it's not reasonable, you keep quiet about it. Because what is not reasonable doesn't belong in the public domain. The public domain is what is reasonable. And hence the famous statement some years ago from uh, Alistair Campbell, we don't do religion. No, government doesn't get involved with religion. It's a private matter. And so it causes offense when people bring what, what belong, what's a private matter, bring it into the public domain. Got no right to do that, the secularists say. It's not reasonable. Keep quiet about it. And so the issues that have been in the press over the last two or three weeks, it seems every week brings a new story. There was the nurse who offered to pray for one of her patients. Gets reported, she's suspended. Then gets her job back because of the outcry. But what came out of that was the NHS saying that it's not proper, it's not allowed to offer to pray for people, or to talk about Jesus. And not only is it not professional, they said, for employers of the NHS to speak to patients, they, employees of NHS to speak to patients, according to the press, they said, it's not appropriate to speak to your colleagues about Jesus. Keep quiet. And then there was the foster carer who had a 16-year-old Muslim girl in her care. That 16-year-old Muslim girl became a Christian and wanted to be baptized. The foster carer is reprimanded and struck off the list. Christian foster carer, you should have dissuaded this girl from believing in Jesus. You have abused your position. You should have forbidden her to be baptized. Nonsense! We're Christians. And then the little girl who spoke to a friend at school about Jesus, heard the story this week, forbidden to speak about Jesus. Out, 
outrageous. Jesus said, if you offend one of these little ones, it would be better for you to have a millstone put round your neck and be thrown in the sea. But oh no, in a secular society, they don't care. There's no fear of God. Little five-year-old girl, you mustn't speak about Jesus. When her mother gets people to pray, her mother gets suspended. What kind of world are we in? In the schools, in the NHS, in the caring professions, whatever. You keep your faith private. Because if you don't, you could lose your job. So what do we do? Well, when these stories come, of course, we're shocked. Of course we are. We read these things. That's why they get into the news, because these things are shocking. Well, one of the things that you observe with the passing of time, that what is shocking when it first happens, then it gets accepted as normal. And within a few years, we will not be shocked by things like that. We'll just accept it. And then Christians will then buy into that. No, you keep quiet at work. I can't uh, invite anyone from work to Alpha because we don't talk about Jesus at work. I mustn't discuss my religion. I can't. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me, we believe in Jesus. We are not... The secularists put faith as a kind of little compartment of your life and you keep it to yourself. Do we believe that Jesus is just in a little compartment in our lives? No, we belong to him. We're in him, totally. Every part of life belongs to him. You can't relegate Jesus to the private. He has saved us. We are his. He is Lord. We are believers and believers all the time. You might say, yeah, but I'd lose my job. I suppose that didn't apply to them. They could just lose their life. But they let it be known. They belong to Jesus. Paul lost his life because he wouldn't keep quiet. No, Paul says, I thank my God. Your faith is well known. It's being reported all over the world, even though it is so dangerous to be known as a Christian. You don't keep it a secret. I thank God for that. You see, it's not optional to keep quiet. Jesus, the Son of God, came into a fallen world, a a sinful, rebellious world. He came. He was hated. He was attacked. He was crucified. They tried to silence him. He rose again. He died in our place, taking our sin. He rose again appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days, really alive. He ascended to heaven. But before he went back to heaven, he said to his followers, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's what it means to be a believer. That's what we're about. That's our commission Go into all the world and keep quiet about it. No, make disciples from all nations. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you're the salt of the earth, like salt scattered over the earth. But he says, if the salt loses its saltiness, you just throw it out. 
We are scattered into the world to be distinctive. And if we lose that distinctiveness, what use are we? What is the point of having Christian teachers, Christians in the health service, Christians in your office, if you keep quiet about it? What's the point? The salt has lost its saltiness. The light has been covered. It's useless. No, Jesus said, go and make disciples. He said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But he was quite realistic about it, frighteningly realistic about it. He says in Matthew 10, verse 16, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. You're quite safe in this synagogue. We only flog books here. (laughs) Be on your guard, he says. They'll hand you over. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. He said, it's dangerous. It's dangerous, but I'm sending you. He said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, Luke 14, if anyone wants to come after me, be, be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. What does that mean? It means laying down your life. Saying, I will take whatever they throw at me, but I'm following Jesus. I have turned from unbelief to belief. I believe him. I'm following him. Whatever the cost. Jesus said, in John chapter 15, John 15 and verse 18, He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. So have no illusions about it. The world hates Christians. People get confused. It's been in the media recently. Why are Christians being singled out? People say they wouldn't do this if it was Islam. No, they wouldn't. They do it. They always have done it to Christians. Why are Christians hated? Because the devil hates Jesus. Why did Jesus get crucified? Well, because he offered himself as a sacrifice and also because the devil hated him. And the devil hates us. The world system that lies in the power of the evil one hates Christians. It always will. Let's have no illusions about it, Jesus is saying. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, he said, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you too. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours. They'll treat you this way. Because of my name. So Jesus is quite clear about it. That he's sending them out like sheep among wolves. And they will be hated. That's what it's about. Paul, of course, knew all about that. He is uncompromising in his commitment to Jesus. Not because he's brave, but because he loves Jesus. Or more particularly, because Jesus loves him. And Jesus has saved him and turned him round and he's committed to Christ. So writing to his young friend Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
He says this, verse 12, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. (laughs) Now that's clear. You know, people of a certain generation, Christians, used to get little verses out of the Scripture and have them on a little framed picture on the wall or something. Nice, blessed thoughts. I've never seen this one framed on anyone's wall. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's your promise for today. (laughs) Hold on to that. It's true. It says, evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 4 there in 2 Timothy, I am ready also to be poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure I fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Here's a man who's following Jesus. He knows he's about to pay the price. But he says, I'm ready. Because this is the faith. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. You follow him. And you follow him through whatever the cost. People who sell Christianity, who market it as if as a product that makes you happy all the time? Do you want do you want to do you want to feel good about yourself? It's it's marketed as self-esteem, as God thinks you're wonderful. Load of rubbish. God God doesn't call us to a life of self-esteem where everything just goes well. He says You were a miserable sinner, not fabulous and wonderful, but a miserable sinner. And I, because of my amazing grace, have loved you. And I have saved you. And now the call is, come, follow me. And we follow him taking up our cross and going wherever he calls us to go. That's faith. Faith in Jesus. And Paul says, I thank God your faith is an open secret. It's being reported all over the world. Do you remember the disciples are, as I said, told very clearly by Jesus what it means to follow him? You'll be hated by everyone. He ascends to heaven, pours out the Spirit. They're thrilled with what God is doing. And what happens? Persecution hits them. And the authorities called them in. Jesus said, you'll be called before councils. They're called before a council. And Acts 4.18, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's quite clear. You're not allowed to talk about Jesus here. That's clear. How did they respond? They said, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. That's the response. I thought it was beautiful. Reported in the press that nurse who was suspended because she offered to pray for one of her patients. There was an outcry. She got her job back. And her response was, I'm going to keep praying for them. She's a Christian. You can't compartmentalize your faith in Jesus. Of course... Who we are is who we are. And we believe in Jesus. Now, of course, we want to be sensitive and so on. We don't want to be ashamed. We will stand for him. We will follow him. And Paul sees that, that they're in this dangerous place. They are openly 
believers. Wonderful, he says. I thank God for it. And not only are they open in their faith there in Rome, but he says, your faith is being reported all over the world. It's famous outside of Rome. He says, all over the world or in the whole world. Just note in passing here, I would imagine that as we read that, none of us would take that totally literally. None of us would assume that down there in the Antarctic and up in the Arctic Circle, they're saying, have you heard there are Christians in Rome? That out in Australia, which hadn't yet been discovered, and you know, all around the world, people are saying, have you heard the news? No, 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 no. When Paul says all over the world, he's referring to the Roman Empire, his world. Let's not get, now hear me carefully, let's not get into this kind of bigoted literalism to say every word must mean what I say it means. No, every word means what the writer meant by it. And he's talking about his world, not the whole world. If anyone thinks, no, I, because it says that, I believe that in, or in, the, in the South American tropical rainforests, undiscovered tribes nonetheless had heard there were believers in Rome. If you want to believe that, God bless you. But I don't think it means that. It's saying all around the world, wherever Paul has gone, people are talking about, have you heard? There are Christians in Rome. question then arises, how had they heard? Couldn't phone anyone. Couldn't text anyone. There was no internet. If we want to get some news out, what do we do? Well, we give you a copy of Newsbyte. Effective? Well, we hope so. We then collect them up from the floor afterwards. Get it on the internet. Put it on the website. If it's something we really want people to know about, we maybe get something printed and had. But all of those resources that we can use, they couldn't use. How did this get out? It's an observable fact that when God does something, the news gets out. Don't ask me how. When God is doing something, the word spreads. Look back through the history of the church. If you ever read any church history, you see when God does something, people hear about it. When there's revival somewhere, somehow people hear. God doesn't need advertising agencies. God doesn't need publicity machines. God is well able to cause what he is doing to get known. And somehow, something's happening in Rome. Okay, it's a strategic place, but something's happening there. And the word spreads. God wants what he is doing to be well known. We as individuals will not keep quiet. We are believers. But as we believe, the word gets out. You see, we're living in a society where if people know anything about the church, what do they know? They know the church is in decline. They see 
church buildings being used for other purposes and the media keeps feeding in the information, numbers are dropping. The number of people in churches on a Sunday declining. One sometimes wonders where they do these surveys, but nonetheless, this is what is reported. If it's in the paper, it must be true. Numbers are going, that's, well, that's what people know. It's in decline. We're living in a post-Christian age. That's what people are told. And if any so-called church leaders come on the news media, what you tend to get is a kind of wishy-washy liberalism of what do they believe? If it gets into the press at all, it's some bishop or whatever who doesn't believe in Jesus. Oh, right, even Christians don't believe anymore. That's the sort of stuff that gets out there. Or, at the other extreme, the kind of hard-nosed bigotry, protesting, uh, getting legal injunctions against people and so on. Oh, dear me. Sort of hard-nosed negativism, wishy-washy. What's it all? That's what the world sees. That's all that ever gets through to them. The world is waiting to see believers. People who believe in Jesus. People who believe and live what this says. People whose lives are radically transformed by the risen, wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. People who have been filled with his spirit and are going about, as Jesus did, doing good, speaking his word, bringing the power of God into people's lives, people getting changed, people being saved out of drug abuse, people being saved out of all kinds of messy situations, lives transformed. I was hearing a story, and I was away the other week in preaching elsewhere. A lady came to the front to give her testimony. She's standing at the front with two children, and she just told how because of her situation, how she had been, her children had been taken from her, they had been taken into care. She had then met with Christ. Her life had been radically changed. What she didn't say, but I heard about it afterwards, was uh, the, the, the mess that she was in was due to drug abuse, and because of that, she couldn't cope. Her children were taken away. She's clean. God saved her delivered her from drugs. The social services unusually said, you can have your children back. And there she stands with these two children, radiant, saved. These sort of things get out. People who believe. People who believe in Jesus. The Jesus who cleans up mess lives. The Jesus who transforms us, radically changes our value system. So we're living for him. The world is waiting to hear that news. Not just all the stuff the media spews out, but the reality. And for Paul, yeah, there are no news media then, but the word has got out. All around, people are reporting what's happening in Rome. Don't you want to be part of a movement like that? Where we're saying, we believe in Jesus. Uncompromising. We believe in him. I'm not a part-time Christian. I'm not a compartmentalized Christian. Where Christianity is a part of my life, Jesus saved a bit of me, but real life goes on. No, he didn't save a bit of you. If he saved you at all, he saved all of you. And you belong to him. And you belong to him where you are, in your home, in the school, in the university, at work. Jesus 
changes everything. You're a believer in Him. It works in the home, how you bring up your children, how you relate in marriage. You're a believer. You're believing for your family. You're believing at work. You're believing at school. And yes, people will hate you. Let's have no illusions about it. People will criticize, mock what they don't understand, and say, no, I believe in Jesus. And the world is waiting to see genuine believers, not the hard-nosed bigots, not the wishy-washy people who don't really know what they believe, people who believe in him. It's time to take the wraps off. It's time to come out of cover. It's time to say, whatever the cost, I'm following a Jesus who gave his life for me, and I'm going to follow him because he's wonderful, because he is worth it. This is not grim determination, but God, a wonderful Savior. And you get Paul's sense of thrill here. I thank my God. Your faith is being reported all over the world. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. It's God's power for the salvation of everyone who believes. He's enthusiastic about it. So he's living it. How about you? How about me?